Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. This is the um, the 14th of 14 classes on this current structured study of the Dhamma practice itself. So we've had uh, 13 previous classes on uh, individual suttas on each aspect of the Four Noble Truths and each factor of the Eightfold Path. Uh, last Tuesday's class was on the Bhattacharata Sutta, which is a sutta that relates to the seventh factor or refined mindfulness. And this sutta, the Samadanga Sutta, is a sutta that's very similar to, to many that you've heard where it describes uh, jhana meditation, but also that fifth factor of ongoing refined mindfulness and how that is rooted in jhana in concentration, but expanded through integrating the entire eightfold path. So this is another one of those suttas that was rather eye-opening to me when I first came across it because it, it I think up until that point, it was the first that started describing the quality of an awakened mind, which is something that I never heard addressed in any way in 20 years previously to that in, in modern Buddhist practice. Uh, as, a, as a practical um, uh, a practical human quality, rather than some kind of magical or mystical quality of mind, um, that I could never really see how it re would relate to the to practically living in the world. And so when I came across what the Buddha actually taught, I realized it is the most fundamental and practical way of living in the world conflict free. And this this is really the um, the foundation or the bedrock which a conflict free mind rests on. Excuse me. When you use the word refined mindfulness, what are you referring to? Like a Thank, thank you, Drake. Yes, it, it really is just to distinguish the modern mindfulness movement, not that I'm against it, but to make clear that the Buddha taught a very specific type of mindfulness, often classified as the seventh factor of the Eightfold Path as right mindfulness, which infers that there's such a thing as wrong mindfulness. And so the Buddha teaches refined mindfulness resting in jhana, resting in concentration, as a quality of mind that is living life within the framework of the Eightfold Path, which ultimately means resting continuously in right view. And that right view is a view that is a completely impersonal view that is disentangled from the world. So refined mindfulness refers to that quality of mind that is uh, living in the world in an impersonal way, disentangled with worldly events. So is that explanation uh, satisfactory? Yeah, that's very beautiful. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the question. And it, it's, it, it's, it is an important point. And again, that's why I talk, I refer to it as refined because it, and again, not a knock on anything else, but it's refined from what most modern mindfulness practices are. And it's focused just on what the Buddha asks us to hold in mind as Dhamma practitioners. And this sutta leads directly to how we can do that. The Samadenga Sutta, the five factors of concentration. On one occasion, the Buddha was in Savati at Jita's Grove, Anathapindika's monastery. 
he addressed those gathered. Friends, I will teach you the five-factor noble concentration. Listen and pay close attention. And what is the five-factor noble concentration? A follower of the Noble Eightfold Path is quite secluded from sensuality and other unskillful mental qualities. So what the Buddha is saying is establish your jhana practice first. Establish seclusion. Find a place where you are, uh, you have some relative quiet and your mind can begin to quiet down. Then the Buddha says, once that has happened, they enter and remain in the first jhana. The first jhana, jhana means concentration, is experienced as contentment or rapture born of that very seclusion. So we do this every time we meditate. Excuse me. We leave the world behind and we find wherever our meditation space is. And it's good that it be a consistent space uh, somewhere in our home or in, in Ram's case, somewhere in his van. Uh, but a consistent space that we know we can always go to um, day after day, twice a day. And we begin to develop rapture or contentment first just born of that seclusion that I've isolated myself or separated myself from worldly entanglements. And that now it's just me and my breath. And that's the beginning of jhana meditation. It's an important to recognize it or the Buddha would teach it. So, and this is, bless you. And this is something we can even generate or should be generating prior to sitting is just the anticipation of this contentment or this this leading to joy born of that seclusion. We found a secluded spot in this chaotic world. This first jhana is accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. So we come back from our busy day or maybe we just woke up and we're on our cushion and we might immediately be distracted by what's coming up that day. We sit down and we start being mindful of our breath. And we find up that we're, we find that we're distracted by a feeling or a thought. And so we direct our thought. That's what this is meant, directed thought, back to our breath. And in the initial phase of meditation, it's normal to be evaluating or placing a value judgment on our meditation. Am I doing it right? Uh, is this, or is my, am I just so incredibly bored? Is this the wrong practice for me? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Instead of this is what the Buddha taught and this is what I'm doing. The joy of seclusion permeates their entire mind and body. And I love the metaphors in this sutta. It is as if one poured bath powder into a brass basin, kneading the powder into the water, sprinkling more and more powder, forming a ball of bath powder, saturated and moisture-laden. It would, nevertheless, not lose a drop of its own substance. These metaphors are incredible to me. It's, they're just as relevant, and we can see just what the Buddha is describing even though this was first taught 2,600 years ago. This is how a follower of the Noble Eightfold Path permeates their entire mind and body from the joy born of that very seclusion. And there's a little clue in here as to where we're going too. We do not lose a drop of our own substance when we enter into this Dhamma practice that an awakened human being actually taught, which means all that we're doing is understanding what it means to be a six-property person as taught in the Dr. Vibhanga Sutta. We don't lose anything of our own substance. And we don't gain anything that we don't already own, which is a common, peaceful mind. If we didn't own it, or at least possess the capabilities towards that, a human being never would have awakened to this in the first place, 
and he never would have something to teach. But he's teaching an entirely practical way of living in the world with a conflict-free mind. The Noble Eightfold Path permeates our entire mind and body. Yes, David. Is it also referring to there's nothing mystical or additional that makes you any more special? Yes, I hope everyone heard that. David said, and also points to there's nothing magical or mystical that makes you anything special. And of course, it doesn't. All that we're doing is realizing what it means to be an awakened or fully mature human being. And there can be nothing more ordinary in the world than a human being. What makes it extraordinary is that we have this practice and that we can actually develop it ourselves and have a direct experience of what the Buddha is teaching. Not some speculative idea that we can just guess on that we might have achieved by enough rites and rituals or just based on faith, that our faith is strong enough somehow to manifest something that is useful in this life. This is a direct practice of developing what it means to be a human being. Excuse me. Um, also, John. Um, yes, Laura. And this is also referring to, you know, we do not lose anything of our own substance. Other uh, sects of Buddhism sometimes talk about ego death or like a yep. violation of the ego. So this is not just ego death that we're trying to achieve obviously it's the middle way right we're not losing anything really of our ego it's just we recognize i guess that it's impermanent and anatta and not self it's, yeah i just i i know we're not supposed to talk about other no like, no, no. It, 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 when it but I, the I reference is an article on that i'm like well they're talking about ego death but that's not what we talk about in our Song at all, and that's not what we're trying to achieve here. Yeah, it, it, the, it's so prevalent in other articles you read. Especially on modern Buddhism, a lot of modern Buddhism, due to a lack of understanding of what the Buddha actually thought, can only reconcile itself in emptiness or nothingness, but a misapplication of what the Buddha even taught about emptiness, which is, excuse me, which isn't a, um, a conceptual state that we should try to achieve, which ultimately is annihilation, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And the Buddha taught just the opposite. He taught to be a, um, when I was first getting into spiritual things, self-actualization was a big deal. But what the Buddha taught was real self-actualization, not based on an ideal, but actually actualizing what it means to be a human being. So we're not, we're not annihilating anything except ignorance of what it means to be a human being. And it's such an important point that you bring up. We are emptying ourselves of ignorance. And what's left is a six-factor, fully awakened human being that is now present for this moment. And that's what makes this practice so ordinarily extraordinary. Because it's the first and only practice that I've ever come across that allows me to be present in this moment without the need for anything, especially myself, to be any different. And that is not annihilation, is it? That, that's that's true experience of living a human life. Mm -hmm. so it's such an important point. Thank you. And once we do that, the Buddha says, this is the first development of the five-factor noble concentration. We establish seclusion, we unite our mind and our body through our breath, and we take joy in that seclusion. We recognize the benefit that it's bringing us. The Buddha continues, furthermore, as the stilling of directed thought and evaluation continues, again, as we continue our meditation, they enter and remain in the second jhana, 
another a deepening level of meditative absorption. And it's important to note here that these are not um, achievements so as such that we should be grasping after these things, but it's simply a recognition of our own deepening concentration, which is the only reason the Buddha taught this is so that we do recognize, yes, my concentration is increasing. And the more that we can recognize that, the more our, our practice becomes self-directed rather than something that crazy bald guy in Frenchtown is telling us we should do, or Siddhartha Gautama is telling us from 2,600 years ago, because he was the greatest teacher of all time in that he understood that for anything to be useful, especially in the Dhamma, it had to be experienced by a human being or it was not a useful teaching. The Buddha didn't teach anything that an ordinary human being like myself could experience. Excuse me. Just to go back to that sentence. Furthermore, as the stilling of directed thought and evaluation continues, they enter and remain in the second jhana. This second jhana is experienced as rapture or contentment and pleasure, now born of concentration. So the first level of meditative absorption feeds this second, doesn't it? Because now I recognize that my concentration is increasing. And again, that starts invigorating my practice simply by recognized, recognizing. And for me, it was the first time that the meditation method that I was now using was actually bringing recognizable benefits where the 20 years before of all kinds of different practices, including 14 hour a day sashins, did not lead to concentration. They led to more speculation and more confusion. And so again, when I first came across this and I realized that the Buddha was saying, pay attention to your deepening concentration, did I start paying attention to my deeper concentration? Which again, makes sense because I didn't know that that's what I was looking for until I came across the Buddhist teaching. Up until that point, meditation was always an escape or something that if I did long and hard enough, I'd have mystical experiences or realize past lives. I was in a tradition that teaches that the beginning of awakening, you, you know you're at the beginning phases of awakening when you start recounting your past lives. We just did a sutta last week and many other suttas where Buddha says, that's complete nonsense. Don't chase after the past or the future. Put your mind in this present moment. Uh, John, can I ask yes, about... Please. Um, how does that... Um, with the... Um, subsiding of directed thought and evaluation um but in your sustaining that concentration um how does that work exactly like um yeah what what does that actually refer to because you you're still staying absorbed in, on meditation object and you're not moving away from it but somehow yeah. the directed thought and evaluation are no longer necessary or yeah and, and not to give a snarky answer but just pay attention now, um, I, th this leads to that. In other words, so we begin our meditation with, with the mind that we're using to live in the world. Again, we're not, we don't dissociate ourselves from the world at all in Dhamma practice. So we begin our meditation practice with that quality of mind out into the world. We establish seclusion, wherever that is. You know, we close the door behind us. We sit down in a quiet room and we start being mindful of our breath. And for most of us in beginning meditation, there's a lot of thoughts and feelings that are still churning around. And so we recognize that that is a distraction. So I'm sitting in meditation I just started and I remember um, a disagreement I might've had with my spouse. 
and it, it and I feel it. I feel the tension in my body. I recognize it in meditation, and I don't seek resolution for that issue with my life by trying to gain some kind of fabricated insight. What happened? I simply take a breath. I direct my thought away from the distraction and back to my breath. And, and the evaluation is, again, in the beginning part of almost every meditation, especially beginning meditators, they're going to be judging or evaluating or placing a value judgment on their practice itself. Am I doing it right? It's too hard or it's too long. It's this, it's that, whatever that might be. That's common. And again, the Buddha teaches this for many reasons. One is to point out the commonality that a human being is going to experience this. There's nothing, um, there's nothing wrong with the quality of mind that has to do this to be in the beginning of meditation. It's simply part of the practice. And so you'll see, Drake, as we continue to deepen jhana, deepen our concentration, the need for directed thought and evaluation falls away. So great question. Thank you for asking it. The Buddha continues. Free of directed thought, it was good timing too. Free of directed thought and evaluation, the joy of concentration permeates the entire mind and body. And also notice Drake and everyone else, the Buddha doesn't put a time frame on any of this. So he doesn't say that you've achieved the second level when you're free of directed thought and evaluation for 18 minutes. He just says, inferentially, is that a word? <laughs> yeah, it's a word now, isn't it? Inferentially, <laughs> that when you're connected with your breath, as your concentration deepens, then directed thought and evaluation falls away. It does not mean that in the next three breaths, you might find yourself distracted or back in that second level. What the Buddha is saying is take a breath and recognize the process of what we're doing, directing our thoughts away from the distraction, uh, an impermanent feeling or a thought, and back to our breath. And that is the basic practice. And as we continue it, we'll have these benefits. Another beautiful metaphor. It is as if a lake with no inflow is filled with spring water welling up within and from abundant showers. The, core, the cool water welling up from within the lake would permeate and fill the entire lake. This is how a follower of the Noble Eightfold Path permeates their entire body, mind and body from the joy born of concentration. This is the second development of the five-factor noble concentration. So the metaphor is that we are, I often use the word that we become sovereign in this practice. We own ourselves and we own our own mind. And so this, this um, inflow of insight is just that. It's welling up from within like this great spring within the, the lake of my own being. And again, it points back to the, the wholeness and the ordinary, extraordinary ordinariness of a human being. This awakening process that we're developing comes from within us. It's not from without. It's not granted to us by rites and rituals or enough of enough <laughs> donations. I was part of a practice that it seemed every three months there was the need for the teacher to have another $3,000 immediately to keep going. And, it, and that was taught that the more, the more money you spent, the better your likelihood was for awakening. And it was really presented that way. And that's a, a major form of modern Buddhism. Not to put it down, it didn't, it didn't relate to what I wanted. And it doesn't relate to this, which is everything that I develop within this practice, I do myself. 
the Buddha and your teacher and the other, how many teachers do we have here, six or seven? We only point the way. We only teach the Dhamma, and we teach it from our own experience. It's not a, it's not a, a concept. It's not something that we read in some ancient book and that everybody else is practicing, and so let's do it. And in a future lifetime or in most of the practices that I was in before I came to this, it was you can't awaken in this lifetime and it's likely going to take endless eons, but go ahead and do it anyway. I never heard anything that is more frustrating and, and I would say debilitating to any, any practice that you can't do it, but go ahead and do it. But I did it because everyone I was associated with was doing the same thing. It wasn't until I came across what the Buddha was teaching that I realized for myself, yes, awakening is for this lifetime, not some other lifetime. Of what benefit is it? The Buddha teaches, excuse me. The Buddha teaches to be mindful of this one lifetime. This is the only one we should be concerned about. He doesn't speculate about future lifetimes, but he says, don't go there. This is the moment to awaken. And this is the only moment that we can awaken. And if not this one, we better make it the next one. The cool water welling up from the from within the lake would permeate and fill the entire lake. This is how a follower of the Noble Eightfold Path permeates their entire mind and body from the joy born of concentration. This is the second development of the five-factor Noble Concentration. So I read that again just for emphasis and notice that this practice that you're developing by your, by your jhana practice, your study, you're coming to class and you're listening to and reading the suttas. It's just this way. You're activating, if you will, that spring within us. Or it wouldn't be a real practice. It wouldn't be something that we could um, experience and own for ourselves if it wasn't within us. And again, the Buddha is teaching the sovereignty of each and every human being. And the sovereignty that we establish as common conflict-free human beings can now add that conflict-free mind to the entire world. And so by talking about the sovereignty of the human being, it doesn't point to any kind of excuse me, selfishness. In fact, it's just the opposite. Because when we understand the nature of our own stress and suffering and realize, as the Buddha is teaching here, the joy of awakening, we, we see other people from that light not from the light that we had before, which was a dim light rooted in self-loathing. Now we're seeing ourselves in the world in relation to our own understanding of Four Noble Truths. The Buddha continues, furthermore, as rapture or contentment fades, again, the Buddha is not saying that now we're entering into the third jhana, we become miserable. We simply are no longer aware of that contentment or that rapture. It's no longer um, a significant part of our jhana practice. Furthermore, as rapture or contentment fades, they remain equanimous, balanced, mindful, alert, and sensitive to pleasure. Not sensually grasping after pleasure, but it's such an interesting, almost a juxtaposition until you realize what the Buddha is teaching, but sensitive to pleasure. What's the Buddha saying? As we awaken, yes, we can experience the pure pleasure of being a human being. And it is incredibly pleasurable when I don't have to bring me into it and need more of this, need more of the chocolate cake. One piece is enough. One breath is enough. One moment is enough. If I'm here present for it, 
Furthermore, I'm sorry, uh, let me read it again. Furthermore, as Raptor fades, they remain equanimous, mindful, and alert, sensitive to pleasure. They enter and remain in the third jhana, which is equanimous and mindful, a pleasant abiding. So now as I'm describing the deeper levels of concentration, just ask yourself, have you experienced this in your jhana meditation? And I bet every one of you has, which means you've experienced these ever-deepening levels of jhana, and you're recognizing it. That's right meditation or right jhana practice. Now, with the fading of contentment, this pleasant abiding permeates their entire mind and body. Another way that the Buddha would often describe this, in some, and I do too, is inner poise. We're comfortable in our own skin. For some of us, it's for the first time in our lifetime. We can simply be present, just being mindful of our breath and nothing else going on. And as I started developing this, I started developing this other idea of how curious it is. And this relates to myself and almost every other human being I've ever met, met that adults, right, mature human beings have a very, very difficult time to sit for just one minute with nothing else going on. Many people can't do it. They, they can't get through a minute. Most of us, when we began our jhana practice, probably couldn't get through a minute without needing something to distract us, even if it was just replaying that story in our mind. And that is a constant distraction, isn't it? And so it's not the world that's the distraction. It's not the TikToks and the Facebooks and the Twitters and the baseball game or whatever else it is, you know, or, or what's going on tonight or tomorrow or distracting ourselves to the past. That's not living life, is it? That's stuck in your own story. And it's a miserable existence no matter how much you kid yourself about it. Because it always leads to what, what Laura almost brought up, really nothing. Because I'm just living in these fabrications. But with the Dhamma, I learned how to be present. First in jhana meditation, through uniting my mind and my body through my breath, recognizing that, yes, first I'm distracted by feelings or thoughts. <sighs> just exaggerated the breath. And it's starting to fade away. And now my concentration is deepening. And there is pure joy just in sitting. And has anyone not experienced that? Again, there's no time frame. But has anyone not experienced that, even if just for a brief moment? If you if you got to say something, if you are, don't just raise your hand because I can't see you on screen. See, I was right. But it is. And this is deep. It's important to recognize it. And this is jhana practice. You're all doing it correctly, as the Buddha taught it 2,600 years ago. The fading of rapture in this pleasant abiding permeates our entire mind and body. This is what kept me going. And then another wonderful metaphor. It is as if a palm is a pond is permeated with red, white, and blue lotus, born and growing immersed in the water. They, they flourish permeated with cool water from the root to tip, never standing above the surface. That's how lotus grows like that. This is how a follower of the Noble Eightfold Path permeates their entire mind and body from the joy born of the fading of rapture or the need for any kind of sensual fulfillment. It's just me and my breath. This pleasant abiding permeates the entire mind and body. This is the third development of the five-factor noble eightfold path. So what is the metaphor about the lotus never reaching above the surface? We're not standing out at all. We don't have to make a name for ourselves out into the world. We're this beautiful lotus that's living this calm experience. Just 
living. That's it. And if you think about that picture of the lotus never going above the surface, you can you can recognize the surface of the lake would be losing our minds. Come back to earth. Take a, take a breath. Unite your mind and your body. Be that calm, cool lotus, just present for everything else that's going on in that pond. It's just there. This is a third development of the five-factor noble concentration. The Buddha continues. Furthermore, with the abandoning of evaluation, they enter and remain in the fourth jhana. So I stopped even thinking about my practice in one way or another, and I'm just being mindful of my breath. And again, notice the Buddha didn't put a time frame. You're in the fourth jhana for 10 minutes. No, he just says you're in it. Recognize that you're in it. This fourth jhana is pure equanimity and mindful. So Drake asked earlier, what was I referring to as refined mindfulness? This is the development of refined mindfulness, getting to this fourth foundation of mindfulness, excuse me. And so we first experience this on our cushion, obviously, and off our cushion, we experience it when we find ourselves entangled in the world, possibly agitated in some way or another, but we recognize it and we take a breath and we unite our mind and our body. And so now we're living off our cushion out into the world, but maintaining that inner poise, that inner seclusion while we're out in the world. Why? Because we first established it on our cushion. We became mindful of it through right meditation, meaning recognizing that our concentration is increasing. And now we can call on it off our cushion when we're out in our, our busy life. And that leads to refined mindfulness or the ability to bring the entire eightfold path into what's occurring in this moment. Being pure, this fourth, this fourth shana, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. They sit permeated in mind and body with pure, bright awareness. Neither pleasure nor pain is seen. This is an understanding of the first noble truth. There is dukkha. Because there is dukkha both in obvious pain, but there's also dukkha in grasping after sensual fulfillment or sensual acknowledgement out into the world or anything that would be rooted in eye-making. We simply sit permeated in mind and body in this pure, bright awareness. And this is what we bring into each moment of our lives as wise Dharma practitioners. Another beautiful metaphor. It is, it is as if one were sitting head to toe in a white cloth over their, their entire body covered. This is how a follower of the noble Eightfold Path permeates their entire mind and body with pure, bright awareness. This is the fourth development of the five-factor noble concentration. So imagine yourself just draped with this beautiful white cloth, and that's your, that's your presence in the world, pure, harming not, no one, but most importantly, not harming yourself in thought, word, and deed, not thinking that you're inadequate for this moment or that you need to be more in this moment or this moment has to bring you more or that person across from you has to be bringing you more. You know, we even have the sayings for this, like taking emotional hostages. That's what it means when we're not more, when we're not completing ourselves, we'll always be trying to take from others to fill ourselves, don't we? We even have other things like people get married and they say, well, my spouse completes me. Well, that's probably not a real healthy place to be. If you need someone else to complete you, you're always going to be grasping after that person and being stingy with whatever they give you rather than being rather than resting in your own pure, bright awareness that needs nothing ever. 
except four things. The Buddha taught every human being needs food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. But he also inferred that those are very easy to come by and should not be a distraction. It's when we want more than that, when we want a lot more food than we need and a lot more shelter than we need and three closets full of clothes or 150 shoes, whatever, <laughs> Imelda Marcos. Do you remember who Imelda Marcos was? No, or, no, yeah, no. Way before your time. <laughs> Imelda Marcos was the uh, the wife of a, a, uh, uh, a rather despotic leader, but she was not known for that. She was known for how many shoes she bought. It was 150. It was a lot, yeah. It was like you know a couple of zillion. She, she spent the country's wealth on her shoes. And so that's a kind of distraction towards materiality, isn't it? And so again, this white cloth permeating in blue and this pure bright awareness of what it is to be an alive human being. And then each moment has its own reward just by being present for it. Furthermore, the Buddha continues, this follower of the Noble Eightfold Path has refined mindfulness well established. And again, notice there's no time frame. As we deepen our concentration and we enter into this fourth jhana on our cushion, we have now established it, established it. And the practice now is to take it off our cushion through refined mindfulness, holding in mind the other factors of the Eightfold Path, well integrated, off our cushion and out into a moment-by-moment life. life. So now, each and every moment, we are simply that pure, bright awareness to what's occurring. You've heard me say this often, that an awakened human being is now simply a reference point to what's occurring. But think about that. To truly be a, ref- a reference point, a dispassionate reference point to your own life, no more conflict, just being present with it in understanding, knowing what's going on in the world and why it's going on in the world, and not to take positions like, you know, we become very tribal, more and more so through, through my entire life, it seems like we're kind of building to a crescendo of tribalism. We don't have to join tribes. In fact, we recognize how debilitating that can be. And we're able to understand why people do that, why people do take such extreme positions and they fall into hatred of each other. And we don't hate the haters anymore, do we? Because we understand it. Because to hate a hater is to hate ourselves. We understand where it comes from because we understand dukkha in ourselves. It is as if this person, when sitting, knew another as standing, or when standing, knew another as lying down. In other words, you don't all have to be doing the same thing. Everybody's different, but we're all sovereign. So, too, this follower of the Noble Eightfold Path has refined mindfulness well established. Their mindfulness is attended to. There's something that we have to do about this. We have to attend to our mindfulness. Their mindfulness is attended to, understood, and well penetrated by wise discernment. This is the fifth development of the five-factor noble concentration. When a follower of the Noble Eightfold Path has pursued and developed this five-factor noble concentration, they have mastered the six superior understanding. This person, this I love this line, and it's it's in the uh, Vitaka Santana Sutta too. And just think about the inner poise and the true human power you'll have as you are able to do this. This person thinks what they want whenever they want and does not think what is unskillful. That's the key to happiness, ladies and gentlemen. 
This person thinks what they want whenever they want and does not think what is unskillful. Imagine that, the ability to think always conflict-free thoughts, no matter what's occurring, no matter who might be in front of us, no matter what we might be hearing going on in the world, no, no matter anything. We sit in this pure, bright awareness of understanding what it means to be a human being. The first noble truth is there is dukkha. There's going to be disappointment. There's going to be stress and suffering. It's simply part of having a human life. It goes along with the territory. And if I want to have this human life, which I find myself wanting it more and more, I have to take up, I have to understand dukkha because it's part of it, isn't it? In order for me to have this incredible moment, I have to put up with all the moments of human life through understanding. And then this moment, you've heard me say this often, this moment is on the verge of eternity. If I want to know what eternity is or true abundance is, I join myself into this moment. And now I'm on the edge of eternity. eternity. This person thinks what they want whenever they want and does not think what is unskillful. Through appropriate mindfulness, they understand the suffering of many from understanding their own suffering. They understand the arising and the passing away of the aggregates, the five clinging aggregates, which is the Buddha's description of the personal experience of suffering. From lack of clinging, they are spacious, free, unbounded, unimpeded. Their form has no boundary and no self-distinction. Imagine that. I don't have to always be promoting the self or protecting the self. It's just a self. And it's always here. It's this six-property person is with me from birth to death. I don't have to add anything to it because I can't, but I can be a reference point to my own life. And that is its own reward. Their, the Buddha continues, their consciousness unbound, restrained. That sounds like a, a, a contradiction there. Unbound, but restrained. It's unbound because I'm able to practice the wise restraint in this moment and be a human being. The wise restraint, restraint brings me into that moment of my limitless being, of being a human being in each and every moment. Their consciousness unbound, restrained. Sounds are unfettered and unsurpassed. This occurs to a practitioner whenever they are mindful and well concentrated. I was at a concert last Saturday and it was just so beautiful. I really, I, I and mean, I kept having the thought, I'm just so glad to be here and be present for it and not be thinking of anything else. And it really was, some of us were here, it was just an incredibly marvelous experience. And it was, and it was made so much more meaningful to me because I was able to sit there with it. It really was just remarkable. Thank you, Laura. Mm -hmm. When appropriate, mindful and well concentrated, they understand the mindfulness and concentration of others. So this is how a description of how understanding our own dukkha allows us to understand the dukkha of others. They know a mind with passion is a mind with passion. How do I know that? How do I stop reacting to the person apart, across from me who is obviously caught up in passion and might be screaming and hollering? How do I not buy into it? Because I understand it. I see a mind as passion as a mind that's rooted in passion. I don't have to go there because I understand it. They know a mind without passion as a mind without passion. How do I know that? Because I've experienced it myself. 
They know a mind of aversion as a mind of aversion. They know a mind free of aversion as a mind free of aversion. Again, the three defilements of greed, aversion, rooted and deluded thinking. We recognize how to extricate ourselves from it because we recognize its qualities. They know a mind free of aversion as a mind free of aversion. They know a deluded mind as a deluded mind. Excuse me. So upon the Buddha's awakening, he had this great understanding of dukkha and the Four Noble Truths. But he thought for about two more weeks that the story goes, nobody really knows, but he seriously considered if it was going to be worth his while to get up off his cushion and teach human beings what he knew. And he struggled with this and he kept coming back to the thought that those that don't want to hear this, it's just going to be trouble for me. I don't want to do it. I've, I've finally found what I've been looking for, a common peaceful mind. It would be vexing for, to me to go out and try to teach people that don't want to hear this. But then he had this thought that if there's just a few people, and most of you have heard this, with just a speck of dust in their eyes, meaning they're, they're ready to, to have this understanding, then it's worthwhile to go out there and teach. And so he realized how he could teach this was through an eightfold path which was the path that would pierce the veil of ignorance and get through to a deluded mind. They know a deluded mind as a deluded mind through the Eightfold Path. So now I can understand all of my behavior in the past, and I can free myself of guilt and self-loathing rooted in that because I understand where it came from. My mind, my mind was deluded, and it looked, when I look at myself and my behavior, it's so obvious to me, yeah, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And so I did a lot of um, conflict riddle things, including addiction and arguments and grasping after this and grasping after that and having to be this and being disappointed that I can't be that, all stuck in this mind of mine. That was one big jumble of not, I'm not this, I'm not that, I can't have this, I can't have that. And always grasping after something more and looking to a spiritual practice to save me from all this misery, which is by the way, how a lot of it is taught. It's not misery. It's only misery when I don't understand myself. And now that I do, I sit permeated in pure bright awareness. What choice do I have but to sit in that rather than grasp after nothing? Grasp after impermanent objects, events, views, and ideas, or sit in understanding of what it means to be a human being and have this experience in this moment. They know a deluded mind as a deluded mind. They know a mind, even more importantly, free of delusion as a mind free of delusion. And how do we know that? The Buddha teaches it. He says that we should know it. How do we know it? It's in a calm and peaceful mind. It's in a mind that is not rooted in eye making, not grasping after anything. They know a restricted mind as a restricted mind. They know a mind free of restriction as a mind free of restriction through direct experience. They know a spacious mind as a spacious mind. They know a constricted mind as a constricted mind. We know the difference. They know a refined mind as a refined mind. They know an unrefined mind as an unrefined mind. They know a concentrated mind as a concentrated mind. And they know a distracted mind as a distracted mind. They know a mind released from ignorance as a mind released from ignorance. So the knowing that the Buddha is talking about is, of course, experiential knowledge. It's not just a conceptual idea. Well, yeah, I can see that I have some ignorant ideas. I'm just not going to think that way anymore. Well, 
I've rid myself of ignorance. It doesn't work that way. It's that ignorance that we abandon, which is a very specific ignorance, and it's ignorance of four noble truths, and the Buddha teaches us exactly how to do it. They know a mind released from ignorance as a mind released from ignorance. We'll have that experience. They know a mind clinging to ignorance as a mind clinging to ignorance. And we all know that, don't we? We've all had the experience. They know for themselves a well-concentrated and supporting refined mindfulness. They know the arising and passing away of bodies within the continuing continuation of endless samsara. Samsara is, is wandering throughout your life in ignorance. That's samsara. And so the Buddha is referring to the endless history of humanity. The Buddha would sometimes talk about it as worlds arising and passing away, yet no one understands. We now understand. And it doesn't have to do with in a few more lifetimes, I can save myself. The Buddha is saying endless lives arise and pass away within this ignorant world, this world that is prone to ignorance. It's characterized by ignorance and characterized by the first noble truth, stress. Bodies among bodies going on, one life after another after another. Nobody able to understand it. But now they understand their associations to people and their circumstances of wandering in ignorance. They know karma and they know rebirth. So karma is, is the present moment unfolding of past intentional acts now moderated by what I'm holding in mind. Karma is not some grand behavioral modification system uh, based on reward and punishment, which is how people refer to karma. If you want to know what your karma is, take a look in your mirror. That's your karma. Your karma is what's occurring in your mind when your mind is unrestrained. But of course, the whole point of practice is to restrain your mind and, and end karma and end giving constantly giving birth one moment to the next, not one lifetime to the next, giving birth to another moment in ignorance. That's the only kind of rebirth that the Buddha was concerned about. What am I giving birth to in the next moment? And so you've often heard me say it this way, that this potential and only well, this moment <laughs> and only this moment holds the potential to either continue ignorance or continue towards awakening. That's it. That's the only choice we ever really have as Dhamma practitioners. Am I moving towards awakening, towards full human maturity, or am I using this moment to continue my own ignorance? And we get to make the clear choice when our minds are well concentrated. The Buddha continues, their consciousness, I'm sorry, their eye consciousness unbound, restrained. They see clearly the continuation of others bound to endless samsara according to their karma. They understand the suffering others of others rooted in bad, bad conduct arising from wrong views, not arising from some type of morality play. Their bad conduct arises from their own wrong views. So I can understand it now. I can understand why someone so-and-so is acting in certain ways and taking certain positions. It's because they're rooted in wrong view, and I know that that's suffering. So how can I judge that person in any harsh way? Because I understand my own suffering was, or maybe still is rooted in that wrong view. They understand those bound to wrong views are also bound to continued suffering. True empathy comes through the dominant understanding where that comes from. And so we can end conflict. We don't have to take positions against anybody anymore. Excuse me. The most 
probably, you know, I don't have the numbers, but probably the most prevalent form of modern Buddhism is the easiest one for people to engage in because it only takes an idea of being against something and that's called engaged Buddhism. And I, I really believe that most of modern Buddhism is rooted in engaged Buddhism, that meaning their practice is a good practice because it's against something. And look what's going on in the world. Everybody is taking strong positions against something because they think that's virtuous to do. And what are you doing? You're creating more and more conflict, no matter how um, <laughs> so-called enlightened the resolution of your views are. If you're introducing conflict in the world, you're just introducing conflict in the world, period. And there's no benefit to that. There never can be. Conflict is conflict, and it always leads to more conflict. And this is what the Buddha understood. The, the, um, the, the New Age mythology that a lot of people are living within and has permeated our, our society was just the same during the Buddha's time. There was always this idea of salvation or, the, or getting to some other plane of existence that wasn't so prone to suffering or even as a lot of certain religions are taught, that it's okay for that there's suffering in this world because we go through this suffering gladly and we get, get our reward for doing so. The Buddha, and I felt this way too, recognize that as losing this life. I've lost my mind. This is a life that's important for me to recognize a conflict-free mind. And there's a way to do it. They understand those bound to wrong views are also bound to continue suffering. Furthermore, their eye consciousness unbound, restrained, they see clearly the arising and passing away of others bound to endless samsara according to their karma. They understand the release of others rooted in good conduct arising from right views. We see it happen all around us within our, our sangha. They understand those released from wrong views are also released from continued suffering. And I think that's why this, this sangha um, why we are naturally very welcoming. The people who come here for the first time, complete strangers, almost to a person say the same thing. They always feel welcome here. And, I, and it's because of this, because we're always encouraging each other to do just this, because we're doing it ourselves. This is why the Buddha told Ananda, the most important aspect of Dhamma practice was a well-focused and well-concentrated Sunday. The Buddha continues, thus, from establishing this five-factor concentration, they enter and remain free of the defilements of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. That's the whole point of the Buddha's Dhamma is to recognize and abandon these three defilements. They are mindful of their release through direct experience right here and now, a mind united in its body. They are mindful of their release through direct experience, not through somebody telling you you can do this, or hoping that you can do this, or having faith that you can do it, or meditating three or four times a week and hoping that's enough. It's not. But they are mindful of the release through direct experience right here and right now, through your own experience. They know this for themselves due to a well-concentrated mind. Right? Again, here the Buddha is telling us exactly what we do. They know this for themselves due to a well-concentrated mind supporting refined mindfulness. This is what the Buddha said, gratified, those assembled were delighted in his word. The end of today's sutta. Um, I, I, again, I think it's, I'd say this every class maybe, but it's such a remarkable sutta and it's, and how complete it is. And I think you can really feel the human side of the Buddha coming through here too. He's, he's really saying, put yourself in your place. 
use jhana meditation now as a buddha would say as i taught you and you can develop this type of refined mindfulness so i'd like to go to brian first how are you brian i am well thank you for this teaching i i loved all the metaphors i don't think i can add anything to this um other than i'm going to go take my bright awareness out into the world with my family now and i hope you all have a wonderful christmas and new year and i'll see you soon thank you brian you too jennifer our teacher jen hi everybody <clears throat> um i love the metaphor of the cloth for the pure bright awareness and and presence and just the mind in general um because it's it it has so many layers to understanding um how to practice and understanding um you know the metaphor that the mind is a, a cloth so it's easily defiled um and when it is defiled you can't clearly perceive phenomena and then also the idea that if you have a pure bright cloth or a pure bright mind then you're you'll naturally um keep it or protect it yeah. from coming defiled so it's kind of like a little nugget i feel like just that thinking of it, of it as a cloth is really within the context of the dhamma it's like a nice nugget to to hold on to yeah i like that too mm. it's uh it's no surprise that did you did you pick the vata Bhattama sutta to follow this because it really follows it nicely doesn't it i didn't uh yeah it really did i didn't um Actually, it's not like I, I only thought, I only picked it because I wanted, I, I was thinking about the new year and I just kind of was like thinking about oh, yeah. like the idea of, um, you know, how we think about a, a clean slate. Yeah. And it's not really like that we need to think about it as a clean slate. It's like every moment, moment by moment opportunity to purify the slate, clean the slate. Yeah. Yeah, Jen's teaching Tuesday's class on the Bhattu Pama Sutta uh, of stained and pure cloth. It really is a great sutta. You're right. It's a good way to, to usher in a new year. We're going to start a structured study, not on the truth of happiness this year. We're going to start a series of classes on the right view. Um, then we're going to get into the truth of happiness uh, after that. So look forward to your teaching on Tuesday, Jen. Kevin, how are you? Very well, Janet. John. Hi, everybody. Um, this is a really fantastic sutta. It's a, it's a really great way to end this whole cycle of uh, jhana and understanding jhana. Um, I really like this sutta. It really brings everything together, the Four Noble Truths, the, uh, the dependent or origination and everything. And it really harkens to me also, and I think you referred to this in your introduction to the Satipatthana Sutta, yeah. because in that he, he 
suggests or he demands bring mindfulness to the fore. And then this further explains how that works after, you know, in, in jhana meditation. So I think it's really beautiful and it really, you know, really just brings it all together. So best to everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Please say Merry Christmas to all the roaches, please. Thank you. Hello, Slav. Hello, John. Hello, everybody. Uh, Merry Christmas and Happy uh, New Year, uh, Refined Mindful New Year. Um, it was very good uh, sutta. It's kind of like describe purpose of meditation. Uh, just train your mind, be uh, concentrated. And uh, also, it's kind of the second time on this week I was... Uh, her definition of arahat, it's person who wants to think about everything what he wants to think about, wholesome uh, stuff and not think about unwholesome. So it's, okay. it's, it's very good. And also it's kind of like main line is every sutra which one we study is based on four noble true and eightfold best. It's yeah. one way or another, it's always come to this. Uh, fundamental teaching of Buddha. It's not about emptiness. It's not about uh, Bodhisattva vow. It's four noble truths and four eight, uh, eightfold paths. Uh, Thank you, John. And again, happy holidays. Happy holidays, Slav. Thank you for joining us. It, yeah, you're. It, it, what I was as I went back into the suttas and started restoring them, they. <coughs> The suttas only made sense when I was able to see that, yes, everything the Buddha taught was taught in the context of what's described as dependent origination and the Four Noble Truths. And once I realized that, then all the other suttas did make, make sense. You know, that was like the, the, the keystone to everything was seeing that. But, you know, it, it's obscured only by what was added to the Dhamma since the Buddha passed. And there was even... Uh, if you read, you know, the, the history of the, um, the the first three councils after the Buddha's passing, right from the first council to the second, there was a desire to alter what the Buddha taught. And so we end up today with all these um, thousands of contradictory Buddhist religions. But what's still left is this pure teaching on four noble truths. And it's remarkable. You know, the word is correct, noble. It, it lasts throughout time. That's what nobility really means, doesn't it? So, thanks, love. Julia, good to see you this morning. Thank you, John, for the teaching. Um, this was a lot, and uh, I enjoyed it. Um, I'm going to let it sit with me, but um, Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas, Julia. Sangama, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. Um, I have to admit, as the Sangha mom, that I was a little distracted by the coming holiday during today's class, but I am so happy that I was here, and I have to say, I, I had a moment, and I really, I really sort of had a a glimpse 
of what it would be like to live your life moment by moment, John, when you said living your life moment by moment is like sitting on the edge of eternity each moment. And that just that really that really resonated with me and it, it it i just felt what that must be like just for an instant but then it's kind of gone but still it's it's amazing to know that 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 is possible yeah. um it's something and then and then even getting there Everything you go through getting there is making your life better. Yeah. As things, because you are developing that mindfulness to look at the world and to look at each moment um, without putting yourself in it and without bringing your self loathing or whatever you want to call it into that moment. You can. Anyway, sorry, I'm going on, but but thank you. And I'm so happy I was here and Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, the, uh, when I say that sitting on the edge of eternity, probably shouldn't dump my mind all the time, but I I have this little, when I say it, I had this little vision of me sitting on the edge of a cliff signifying eternity out in front of me and my legs are just kind of dangling over the cliff like that and there it is sitting on the edge of eternity (laughs) and it really is a playful place to be because life just keeps going on and on and on whether i'm mindful of it or not so i might as well be present for what's occurring to me in this moment and that makes this that that gives this moment all the meaning it ever could have for me and it's just that way thanks becky john yes julia So I'm not sure if this is going to make sense, um, but um, I know how Laura mentioned ego death and how we don't really address that there. And it's like, we're not trying to um, escape the self, right? Um, But when I feel like I'm not paying attention to myself or attaining to things that I want, like... uh, that's not what the Buddha um, said that we actually need to survive, like food, shelter, the other two things you What is it? Food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. Yeah, like the bare minimum, I'm guessing, is what he's really addressing too. Um, But when I want more of those things, like if I want a massage or if I want to take a bath or if I want this, and it's like if I don't do certain things like that or attain to the self or like comfort myself when I'm going through a difficult time. I feel like I'm like neglecting myself. And then that's what leads to self-loathing. It's like, Oh, like I didn't protect myself enough or I didn't um, like attain to my emotions enough or, and then that's what leads me down that, that route. Yeah. And when you fall into that with really what you can, you're describing a few different conditions, but it could be described as relating to the hindrances to the hindrance of doubt. Remember that Buddha taught five hindrances. 
And so when you can recognize that you're just caught up in your the doubt about yourself and your own practice, and that that's, it's not that you're doing something wrong. It's just that that's what's occurring. And so what's the resolution is unite your mind and your body and continue with Dhamma practice. And in the context that you now see it, you can see the, the, um, the contrast between your mind conflict-free and when it's engaged in conflict, even the conflict over needing something to be different rather than there's nothing wrong with going to get a massage. It's when you need the massage to make yourself different than you are. Mm. That, that's a, that could be a very subtle difference. You know, and it's it, only the individual knows and that's at that point whether they're they're grasping after or simply being engaged in your life. It's it's not it's not wrong to pay the mortgage knowing that you're doing it so you don't get thrown out next month. You know, that, that's not getting lost into the future. It's just a practical way of living in the world. Mm -hmm. And so even the things that you describe can be a practical way of living in the world. Even recognizing that the day is overwhelming and going to your cushion in the evening for refuge that the Buddha teaches. That's a true refuge. So that's not an escape in that way. It's using Dhamma practice as it's intended. It's when we're, when we start taking all these other things personally and, and getting enraged at the world or at ourselves because of conditions that we're, that we've lost our mind. Does that help Julia? A lot. Yes. Thanks. Yeah, and, and resolution again is to come back to practice, which you do. And that's the, the word resolution this practice provides resolution mm. where what Laura's referring to is absolutely a dead end and mm. only going to bring more suffering for her herself and those around her yeah mm. where go take a bath it's just a bath yeah it, you know it's the resolution is everything about this this practice and keeping it pure to this practice and not trying to add or subtract to it. So, I mean, that's the purely the, the difference between what Laura was describing and what you, you just did with uh, Julia. Yeah, because yeah. in, I mean, before this practice and your helpful clarifications and explanations, John, of what the Buddha actually teaches but even now I still have this tendency to, to think of the ego as evil and, you know, like this thing like that I dread and like, oh, there it is again <laughs> coming up within me. I have to like stop it, get rid of it, yeah. you know, try to change it. But I guess, well, I know that's not what you're teaching us because that's tied into self-loathing and it's impossible. We need, I mean, our ego is, that's just how we're wired. It's just kind of how our, we're built you know, to yeah. exist biologically in the world, but there's a way of, you know, it, like you just said, is my mind conflict free, you know, oh. is really what you have to ask yourself, or am I being driven yeah. by impulse all the time, or desire all the time, or, you know, because we are conscious human beings, you know, we're able yeah. to, to put those, you know, to Put our mind at ease and calm the mind. So, yeah. Yeah, the ego can be seen as conditioned mind, you know. It's, yeah. So it's conditioned by ignorance, which which tells us, okay, it's not it's not good, it's not bad, but it is something to recognize that this is what I developed in my life that was 
causing me so much distraction and confusion and, and stress and suffering. And as I started to understand my conditioned mind or my mm. developed ego, and through this practice, I was able to recognize how it kept coming up and causing difficulty for me. Mm. And, and so to diminish that aspect of my conditioned mind. And so what, what's left? What are you left with when you let go of all ignorance? You're left with what the Buddha taught, a pure, bright awareness, a mind, a human mind united in its body that's now ready to live its life, meaning this moment. And it doesn't matter if you're 67 or 27 or 107, the importance is to recognize this moment in your life, period, yeah. you know, free of conflict. Can I, can I just say something, John? Yes, of course. Um, so to, to Julia's comment, um, and then I, I just feel like your response, John, was so good. So I don't want to muddy it up too much, but I just wanted to point out that when the my when we are going through our lives and moving through our day and we get busier and busier and our minds become more busy and more distracted and more diluted and defiled, which is just part of what happens in life, no problem. Yeah. It is more likely for the hindrances to arise. Yes. I want a bath. I need to take a bath. I need to do a, you know, some yoga. I need to whatever, whatever. That is sensual. There's sensual desire in there. Nothing, still nothing wrong. Still no, no problem. But when we say to ourselves, okay, now I have to take a bath in order to feel better. Or I have to do some yoga in order to feel better. Or I have to, you know, anything, anything at all. Then there's, then in that, that's going further down the clinging, craving, aversion pathway. Yeah. Of, you know, now, now the self-loathing is going to, yeah, you're going to see that whole consciousness becomes about self-loathing because, you know, I didn't, I, I took on too much. I didn't, whatever it is. But again, it's just no problem. No problem. There's sensual desire. Yeah, it might, and and then as soon as you recognize it as that, you know, I want to take a bath. Well, yeah, that makes sense because I just had a really hard day. Okay, yeah. no problem. Nice if I have time to take a bath, maybe I'll take a bath. But I don't have to take a bath in order to, in order to clear my mind. Yeah, I've been telling myself know, that. Back to my breath. Now. Come back to yeah. <laughs> I'll eventually take a bath. And every, I notice everybody's practicing the six foot rule too. So. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 a conditioned mind will always apply conditions to things, such as I need a bath rather than right. I'm going to go take a bath. <laughs> always conditions, conditions on the world. Mm -hmm. What is it? Thank you, Jen. Drake, welcome to our Sangha again. I'm sorry that I didn't remember that you were here before. I do now, but it's good to see you. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, well, I, I really like kind of learning about refined mindfulness is, you know, uh, incorporating the right view and right mindfulness and right concentration yeah. and that kind of producing a, a state of mind that's characterized by dispassion so that you can abide yeah. in the present moment and uh, be free from eye making and craving, acting on that craving. Yes, that's right. Yeah, 
Pardon me? Oh, I just wanted to say I'm kind of interested in that theme of uh, disenchantment with uh, objects of desire. You know, I could just like I, I put sugar, you know, I started eating sugar last night and then I had to eat, fin eat all of it. And then I ate more after more thing, you know, it's just like once you start feeding a craving, it just takes over. And, yep. and you know, I could really feel the results. And so I'm just like starting to get the feeling that, you know, and I knew there was craving there and I didn't have to make that choice. I just watched myself do it and how uh, unhelpful it was, you know, especially like this morning, waking up, not feeling that great. And so it's, yeah, it's just kind of like a new thing to learn about that disenchantment for uh, kind of worldly pleasures that have their own consequences is creates yeah. space for the freedom of just being at ease in the present moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you and, see the contributory factor that, that last night's sugar had to today's quality of mind. Yeah, totally. And, yeah, and it's just the Dhamma is, I mean, you could say that's all of Dhamma practice. It's, it's, it's recognizing the practicality of making mindful or well-concentrated choices. And, and when you don't, so you might not feel comfortable answering this, and it's fine if you don't. But how did you, what did you think about yourself in relation to your actions last night? Well, I was pretty disappointed because I, you know, kind of, when I woke up this morning, I felt how I felt. I just like, I've done this like thousands of times. You're like, how many times does it take before you like, you know, and, and I think it was like, there's something about that starving the craving. You know, if you just let yourself, you, it's like you can't feed it. And so you've got to have a little discomfort until that thing goes away. So if I would have just. There is Duca, yeah. Yeah, sat with that. Like, to un, yeah, like if I would just recognize it as Duca and then investigate it. Oh, I should understand this. And it has a cause and it'll, it, it will go away. It's impermanent, you know. Yeah, but, uh, and let go of the, any judgment about it, though, that it, it's just something you did. It's not right or wrong, good or bad, but it may not be something you want to do in the future. Because when we judge, we're, we're kind of hardwired to believe that if we want to change anything in ourselves, we should first recognize what we did wrong, beat ourselves up for about a week or, or the rest of our lives, and then we can change. And it, it just doesn't work. What, what works is to recognize this is a behavior that I've done in the past. I'm no longer going to do it. And that's in the description of an awakened human being is a fully mature human being who makes those kind of choices. And that's all it is. You know? So the, the, the judgment of yourself or how other people do it is just rooted in self-loathing. And it never, it never brings us to any kind of resolution you know, as far as changing behavior. But that framework of the Eightfold Path will bring all of these little um, idiosyncratic aspects of our behavior to our awareness. Why? Just so we can change it, not to realize that, um, you know, I'm, I'm no good this way, I'm no good that way. It's just who you are. You know? And I'm so glad you joined us today, Drake. Well, thank you. Yeah. Laura, good morning. I don't have much more to add, but yeah, I just wanted to say that was very helpful what Jen said about being aware that, you know, the consequences really of indulging in our ignorant conditioned mind is that it predisposes us further to the hindrances. So like Jen said, no problem. Just be aware of it. You know, don't beat yourself up over it. Yeah. Just, so thank you, Jen. That was helpful. 
Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jen. Oh, my teacher, wrong. Gotcha. Hello, Donna, teacher, wrong. <laughs> saw that first um, simile that you gave of the, the bath, however, for what it was, is when we <clears throat> infuse ourselves with concentration and mindfulness, we don't lose any substance, we don't gain any substance, we're just infusing ourselves with concentration and mindfulness. Mm -hmm. That's all that happens. That's not a, not a big change, is it? We're still the same person. Yeah. That's it. And in that way, it relates to the gentleness of the practice itself, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. it is, yeah. um, in order to develop the Dhamma, we have to be gentle because the Dhamma itself is gentle. You know, it just, it just is. It's, yeah, a, it's a conflict free, free way. And it doesn't demand on us of anything. In other words, if you practice the Dhamma, you should be this way or that way. It's just wake. Be what you are. Popeye was right. I am what I am. Oh, my teacher David. Hey, Tim. I'm all set. Well, there he is. There's David. He's all set. Be safe, everyone. What's that? Be safe, everyone. Be safe, everyone. And here's Johnny. All right. Stop the silliness. Um, we'll finish with uh, Meta as we always do, but I want all of you to have a safe and happy holiday. Um, Jen's going to be teaching on Tuesday. We should all be looking forward to that. I know I will be. Yep. Not to put the pressure on her. But <laughs> it will be the greatest Dhamma talk ever given, I think. <laughs> we'll finish with Meta. These are the Buddha's words on Metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. So take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And the Buddha's words on Metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, admitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. 
by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class. Thank you, John. Merry Christmas, everyone. Thank you. Merry Christmas, everyone. Also, Ram, that's an amazing Christmas sweater. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yep. Hi, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.